and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, April 8th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by a video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Morning, Julie. And Tammy Luby of CNN. Hi there. Later in this episode, we'll play my interview with my KFF colleague, Molly Ann Brody. In addition to pretty much running the place, Molly heads up KFF's polling and survey research activities. And we'll talk about the vaccine monitor that they've been working on to track Americans' attitudes and behavior around the COVID vaccine. But first, this week's news. I really want to talk about some of the health items in the infrastructure package President Biden unveiled last week while noting that there are going to be even more health items in the remainder of the package that's supposed to be rolled out later this month. But even before we get to that, I want to take a moment to note that there's starting to be action from the first big bill that Congress passed and the president signed a few weeks ago. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra announced on Wednesday that a half a million people have already signed up for health insurance during the new open enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act, which now goes until August. That's even before the new subsidies became widely available just last week. Tammy, you wrote about this. What do we know about these people who are signing up? Well, it's very interesting. We do have more than half a million signed up in six weeks. And as you say, it was before the new subsidies were widely available, which was on April 1st. And this is for the federal exchange. It's more than double the same period over the previous two years, which, of course, was more limited. It was mainly for people who had lost their job-based coverage or had gotten divorced or something like that. Now, it does seem, according to HHS, that this year's special enrollment period is attracting more African-American and lower-income Americans than in previous years. 17% identified as Black this year among those who identified as uh, race compared to 11% in previous years, and about 41% have household income at or just above the federal poverty level compared to 38 and 33% in previous years. And of course, we're seeing the most interest from Florida and Texas, but that's not that surprising because they have high uninsured rates and they have a lot of people. But it's interesting because we'll see the Biden administration is committing $100 million to marketing and outreach, as well as some money for navigators for enrollment assistance. And they've really ramped up their advertising about the new subsidies that Congress granted. So we'll see now, uh, as you say, it runs until August 15th. So they have plenty more time to get people to enroll. But there are, I believe, 15 million people who uninsured who are eligible to receive the enhanced subsidies. So that's that's a lot of uninsured people. And compared to that, 500 million, 500,000 is not that much. So we'll see where it goes. I did keep seeing the ads and people kept pointing out to me, look, mm-hmm. they're advertising for healthcare.gov during the NCAA basketball tournament. Um, I right. mean, that's pretty good targeting that we didn't see for the four years of the Trump administration. Right, because the Trump administration cut advertising by 90%. So they did send emails to people who had, you know, expressed some interest. But the Biden administration is really focused on getting the uninsured, the people who have not signed up. So we'll see. I mean, the subsidies that were, as you mentioned, you tied this into the relief bill. The subsidies in the relief bill are, you know, pretty substantial for two years. They last this year and next year. 
And, you know, one of the big issues is now a lot of middle income Americans have claimed that the Affordable Care Act was not affordable because they made too much for subsidies. Well, now that's no longer the case. There's no upper limit anymore for subsidies. So basically enrollees will pay no more than 8.5 percent of their income towards coverage and many lower income enrollees will have their coverage without premiums at all, as well as anyone collecting unemployment insurance will be able to get no premium coverage. And the subsidies are heftier because before you used to pay nearly 10% of your income. Now it's only 8.5. So, yes, we'll we'll watch this as it goes along. But I think it's already sort of overperforming compared to what was predicted. So in proposals that are not yet law, President Biden included in the package that was supposed to pay for roads and bridges and broadband, something the administration is calling, quote, human infrastructure. And that includes big boosts in the availability of home care and to boost the salaries of home care workers who are, I think, by far the most underpaid people in the healthcare workforce. Um, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said at the briefing Wednesday that it's part of the infrastructure package because the whole thing is really a jobs bill, and this is important for jobs. Um, Joanne, you've written, I think, more than most of the rest of us about long-term care. How big a deal could this be if it actually happens? A really big deal. I mean, it wouldn't solve the entire long-term care problem in this country, Um, But it basically increases the ability of families to keep their loved ones at home with assistance and taking care of them, with with AIDS, with help. For the elderly, for people with dementia, and for the disabled, some of whom are young. I mean, you can have an entire lifetime of disability. When Medicaid was started, the bias was toward institutionalization. Over the last, I'm not sure, maybe 20 years, maybe more by now, um, there has been a move toward home and community-based care. Uh, And almost every state has some kind of waiver, some kind of program. I I would be surprised if it isn't all 50, but it's certainly most. And there are more options, but they're still limited. And it's still a tremendous uh, financial burden on families, people who give up their jobs to take care of their loved ones, people who have part-time help that you know, basically uses all their disposable income and then some. So so expanding this, not as an entitlement for absolutely everybody under all circumstances, that costs even more money, but to really make more than a down payment, a significant contribution to the ability to do home and community-based care with the, a joint venture between a family and outside help is a big deal. The very first story I wrote as a as a Cub CQ reporter in 1986 um, was about the coming crisis in long term care, and I remember thinking at the time, "Oh, 2010 is you know, which was when the baby boomers started retiring. It's really long time from now. We're going to take care of this long before then." And of course, we never did. Um, there was a small long term care program in the Affordable Care Act that got dumped almost immediately because it was deemed unaffordable, the Class Act, even though there was an enormous amount of of lobbying for that. There was supposed to be a long-term care component and something that was called the Pepper Commission. You know, students can go back and Google that, and they never really were able to launch anything. We just sort of muddle along, but I'm interested to see the Biden administration describing this as a jobs program, because I think it both jobs for the people who are doing the care, but also jobs for the people who are sort of caring for relatives who would like to be out doing other jobs. Um, So it's sort of a jobs program in two different directions, right? Yes. I mean, if you ask the CBO how much it would cost to fix all aspects of long-term care in this country, it would probably be the first time they actually used the word gazillion (laughs) in a CBO document. Um, 
This, but this is a lot. I think it was is it four hundred billion? Was that what the number was? I've forgotten. But it's it's oh, and I think that's over ten years, maybe. I mean, it's not it's not the be all and end all answer to everything. People live longer. Medicare was created at nineteen sixty five at a time when we had a lot more acute disease in this country. People died younger and faster. We now die older and slower. That's basically, on average, that's a good thing. But our needs are different. We have a chronic disease country and an acute disease healthcare system. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but not that much. Not much. Right. You know, this is help. It'll be targeted toward people who need it the most. So it's it's really help. Um, if you are a full-time caregiver, sometimes for many years, um, I mean, I've done a piece of it. I've never been a full-time caregiver for years, but I have helped with home care for two relatives in difficult circumstances. It's really difficult. It's physically difficult to, you know, people who are listening to us and not seeing us. I'm teeny, you know, I can't lift and move and do the things that somebody, you know, in my case, it was a grandparent and later my father, I couldn't pick him up. You know, I couldn't help him walk. And my mom is my size. So yeah, we needed help to keep him at home. And we wanted to keep him at home. And, um, you know, my mom had some long-term care insurance. Um, that's really unusual. She was a state employee who had some, didn't cover all of it, but it helped. Most people don't have that. And it's also difficult job-wise. I mean, you're lucky if you have a job that gives you the flexibility because you can't schedule when you're elderly parent is going to need help. And, you know, I also had elderly parents that I had to take care of, and they were very concerned at times because I was spending so much time with them. And for my dad, who died in 2003, it was before the internet really allowed remote working. You know, it was before smartphones. So I was just fortunate that I had a job that did allow me the flexibility, but most people don't. So they're, you know, deciding between their own job to take care of their family and their kids or to help their parents when they need it, when they fall and when they have problems and when they have to go to the doctor. Yeah, well, I, I think whether or not this is infrastructure, it's, it's good to see it actually being debated because it's... It keeps, it's human capital. Yeah. Whether or not you call it infrastructure, you might debate. I mean, there are people who work all day at jobs, hard jobs, physical jobs in some cases, and then spend all night being the caregiver. Um, I mean, there, there are people who quit their jobs to be caregivers. There are people who, who, as you know, Tammy described, try to telecommute by being a caregiver. I did it part-time. I didn't do it full-time. Um, and I did it, you know, my shift was night and weekend after working, you know. So it, it's a terrible, I mean, the gift of being with a loved one at home, in the, it is a gift. It is a privilege. It is a really moving experience to be able to take care of somebody. Those time, you know, my grandfather and then my father, I mean, it's difficult. It's emotionally difficult. It's physically difficult. It's exhausting. It's also a great gift. And to be able to, and I don't regret one minute of it, as difficult as it was, I'm grateful for it. And yet, yeah, I mean, my family, I'm one of four siblings, adult siblings. My mom did have some long-term care insurance. We're not Medicaid eligible. They have some money. We were able to do it. And we didn't have to do it for years and years, you know, but it's tough. And people don't understand how tough and how isolating and how expensive and how draining. So, yes, I mean, it's a lot of money. I mean, no, no, no lawmaker is going to say this isn't a problem. No longer maker is saying we don't have to ever think about this. They may not think this is part of an infrastructure bill that should be building bridges. Like, you know, what the hell is that doing there? We hear, we are hearing that. But this is the unfinished entitlement. This is the unfinished piece of the safety net, old age and disability. I actually looked up the definition of infrastructure um, as this is being debated. And I think it's not as far of a stretch as people have been making it seem if you look it up. And the other thing we've sort of alluded to here, but it's also this recognition of 
things that traditionally in our society we've considered unpaid labor maybe don't necessarily deserve to be unpaid labor and should be paid labor. And traditionally, again, this sort of care work has fallen on women. And it's a recognition that the work that women traditionally do is just as economically valuable as the work that men have traditionally done. So I think that's very symbolic for our country and culture to kind of place value, including a monetary value on this. As Joanne said, it it is very hard. It is physical labor. It's emotional labor. It's not easy. (laughs) And so to put sort of an economic value on that's important as well. Yes, it's the same. It's, a, you know, this, I, there, this is in a package with childcare, which is the same thing. The problem for the federal government is that so much of this has been provided free over the years that to pay for it costs an enormous amount of money because it's an enormous amount of value that people are currently giving away. But we should move on. Um, also part of the infrastructure, and I think something people think of more as actual infrastructure, uh, the administration is proposing nearly $50 billion to dig up and replace the remaining lead service lines around the country, which obviously threaten the health of those whose water comes from those lines, as we saw so tragically in Flint, Michigan. This is part of a larger, more than $100 billion water infrastructure proposal that would both create jobs and make water safer and more available to millions of Americans who, and this is hard to believe in 2021, don't have easy access to clean water still. This is a huge public health issue. Why do we pay so little attention to it? It's also a huge disparities issue. It is not exclusively in poor neighborhoods and minority neighbors, but it is disproportionately in poor. I mean, Flint was a black city. Newark has had a lot of problems. Um, and Southeast where lawmakers DC, right. tend not to live. Right. Southeast D.C. has more problems than Northwest D.C., which is a predominantly black versus a predominantly white. It's not I don't want to say it's 100 percent. I'm not going to say there's no bad water in, in wealthy neighborhoods. There's no clean water in poor neighborhoods. That's not true. But there's a pattern. And yeah, I mean, it's it's 2021. Let's get the lead out of our pipes. Yeah, and also, I mean, I was surprised during the beginning of the pandemic um, in Indian country in particular on some of the reservations. They didn't have any water. They kept saying they're telling us to wash our hands. We don't have running water. Um, there are there are still, you know, pockets in the United States that serve many, many people where water is not something that they can take for granted. You know, if you're going to talk about infrastructure, that seems to be a piece of it. But I also think if you talk about it as ROI, right, you know, we're all health journalists. We talk about the health benefits. If we were all bean counters, you know, it, it's probably cheaper in the long run to get rid of the lead than to pay for the consequences of all the brain damage babies and other things that go wrong with people who are constantly exposed to lead. You know, we, we tend to think in really short term, oh, this is going to cost us X number of dollars to fix these pipes over the next five years. As And it's probably because the way the budget windows and the congressional budget scoring is done, we're not thinking, what is this going to cause? You know, what will this save over the next 20 or 30 years if we fix it? And, and that's a problem with public health and population health in general. We think about these upfront costs and we go, ah! But the thing about public health is that if you don't see it, it's succeeding. Right. You only see the failures. Right. And why why pay for something you can't see? You don't need that. All right. Well, we talked a little bit last week about how so few states seem on their way to expanding Medicaid, despite a new financial incentive provided in the COVID relief bill. But it seems that some states are taking advantage of another smaller opportunity in that bill uh, to expand postpartum coverage for new mothers from the current 60 days to a full year. A bill 
just passed the West Virginia House of Delegates by a vote of 98 to 2. There's also a bill moving through the legislature in Alabama. I'm curious as to why some states that are all hell no on expanding Medicaid to all adults up to 138% of poverty, which is what we're talking about with those last 12 states, are eager to expand it to moms who earn basically half again as much. Um, It's a much higher income threshold for pregnant women on Medicaid. Is it just that new moms are more sympathetic and they sort of see that? Yes, I think, Julie, that it's a couple of things. Moms are more sympathetic, moms and babies. There's been a lot of discussion and publicity in the last couple of years about maternal mortality. Um, And I think many of us, including me, originally thought maternal mortality is something that happens, you know, two days before you deliver or or while you're delivering or, you know, we think things like preeclampsia and hemorrhaging. No, it's actually you're at risk for the entire first year after giving birth. So this, this extends that medical coverage for that really critical first year. It is disproportionate among Black women and other women of color. And frankly, it doesn't cost as much to expand Medicaid for new moms for one year as it does to expand Medicaid for, I forgot the current number, I think, is it is it four to five million people forever, right? So, and I forgot the exact number of the 12 states now, maybe it's three million, but this is pennies on those dollars. I think it's more than that because of the, because of the bigger, because Texas, Florida, Georgia, the big, the big states. It's a couple of million, you know, three million, four million, five million people who are, who are in that Medicaid gap. This is just a small number of them for one year. And it doesn't cost that much. Most of them are going to need an occasional checkup and going to be fine. Again, it's ROI. You stop a crisis before it becomes a crisis. You spot a problem. You treat a problem. It doesn't become a crisis. It sounds good. It is good. It doesn't just sound good. It is good. And um, it doesn't really cost that much. One of the issues about Medicaid expansion is is that it would go to low-income adult of working age. And that's what really gets a lot of people ideologically is saying, you know, I don't think anyone expects necessarily new mothers to go out, you know, on day three and, you know, return to work to care for their babies. But when you're talking about regular adults who are low income, you know, there's a perception that they should be able to get jobs and get their own health care. That's not the case with moms. So the irony there is that most of the people who are in the Medicaid gap are working. They're just making making minimum wage and working for jobs that don't provide health insurance. Right. Also, the federal government is paying for a lot of this. It's not all state dollars. We also talked a little bit about vaccine passports last week, but as we predicted then, this is turning into quite the political blow up. Uh, The White House says it won't sponsor one. And now the World Health Organization says it won't even support the concept because it points out we don't actually know for sure yet that being vaccinated stops you from transmitting the virus. But that hasn't stopped lots of speculation and private sector interest in creating some sort of vaccine credential. Uh, And if some sort of umbrella organization doesn't step in, don't we run the risk? of having a bunch of different cards and apps and QR codes that will just make everything much more difficult and confusing. Isn't that the American way? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I just, I keep thinking of electronic medical records, which the Bush two administrations tried really hard to, you know, get everybody to work on a, you know, some kind of a platform that would be interoperable. That was the buzzword of the, the, the aughts. Uh, and and also, it didn't happen. Right. And also Seema Verma and the Trump administration was also very much into interoperability. But I mean, you know, we already see that a lot of colleges are starting to require vaccinations, sporting arenas. My friend's husband recently went to an Islanders game and he's not fully vaccinated yet. I think he actually gets his second shot. He got it either yesterday or today. 
but he had to get a negative test. But next time when he wants to go to his next Islanders game, he'll have that, you know, double shot on his uh, on his white card. So there are an increasing number of venues and, you know, businesses and different things that are requiring privately this vaccine passport. So even if it doesn't get widespread uh, implementation, it will be a thing in the U.S. and particularly in certain states. I was, there's sort of two pockets of ideologies to think about here is one, you have sort of the U.S. resistance to vaccine passports, which is often coming more from the right, the Republican side as thinking about this as, you know, infringement on individual freedoms and liberties in the same way they oppose some of the lockdown measures and the mass. And then you have um, where the World Health Organization is coming from more and some folks more on the left thinking about the sort of global nature of this and equity. Um, and right now, mostly who's getting vaccinated are people in richer parts of the world, whiter, wealthier parts of the world. And so if we create a global system of sort of vaccine passports, particularly as these countries are keeping most of access to the vaccines to themselves, we're un- sort of unfairly penalizing huge swaths of the world. So, And a lot of people on that side of the equation that are worried about it, I think, in theory, are not so much opposed to, you know, some kind of vaccine mandate or qualification to be in a big congregate setting like a college or school. But they also don't want it to become sort of a system that creates kind of like a privileged class of people when you have large swaths of people that would love to be vaccinated and just simply are not getting the chance. I know we're at this sort of strange point where some people are vaccinated, but many, many people still aren't. But there is this whole sort of equity issue, Sarah, as you point out, around the world, but also just in the U- in the U.S. There, you know, what's going to happen to people who, for one reason or another, don't get vaccinated? Are they going to be like permanently shut out of hotels and airplanes and sporting events? There, you know, they're probably always. I know in in colleges there are going to be religious ex- exceptions, which has been an issue in New York State because they got rid of the religious exception for vaccines for public schools, and then you know it was a big issue for those who didn't want to get their children's vaccinated for measles, and then we had. Measles outbreaks. So, you know, I think this is to some extent a push of saying, hey, you know, you really should get the vaccine not only for yourself, but for public health more widely. So I think that that's one of the the calculations potentially. So, Joanne, your extra credit is on this very subject. So I'm going to ask you to do it now. It has a long headline. (laughs) What the hell are you supposed to do with your vaccine card? It's in Slate by Elena Debray. And it talks, you know, when you get your vaccine, you get this little white card stack in a ballpoint pen, you know, with your what vaccine you had and what what lot number it is, and it does not actually fit in a wallet. And like, what what do you do? Yeah, it's just the wrong size, <laughs> and and you could lose it. Uh, I mean, when my mom got hers, not only did she she put a place where she keeps it, not only did she take a picture, I was there. I took a picture. I made sure all four adult siblings have the picture and the two grandchildren, that adult, young adult grandchildren who live closest. We all have the pictures. We have the pictures as a text. We have the pictures as a Gmail attachment and we have a printout. So, so I, I overkill. But this article talks about, should you laminate it? Well, I thought, well, you know, that's a good idea. Maybe laminate it. No, 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 don't, don't laminate it because apparently some stores are giving free lamination. But first of all, lamination might actually destroy the ink under it. And 
And secondly, we may need boosters. So how are you going to, how are you going to write on your leg? I guess we could have stickers on our lamination, but probably shouldn't laminate it. Um, probably we should just, you know, take a picture of it for now. But anyway, this article talks about what do you do and not do with it? Do you, when do you need to have it with you? Or how do you not, you know, don't lose it? What happens if you do lose it? It's, there is a record of it somewhere. I mean, God forbid you have to go back to like the supermarket pharmacy in a year and try to get them to get your records. You know, good luck with that, you know, near the spinach aisle. It is not well thought out. The data collection, the different states don't all talk to each other. Keep track of your piece of paper, but hope that the data systems improve. Yeah, there will be much more to talk about. Yeah, I actually don't know where, sorry, just to say my friend got hers through NYU. So hers is in her my chart. And I'm so jealous because I got mine through the city system. And I'm realizing I don't think it there's I mean, I guess there's a record somewhere, but I don't know where it is. And I would love to be able to pull up, you know, my little my chart and have my uh, vaccine proof there. But you probably I'm could not- take a picture and do an attachment. Good idea. <laughs> Before you laminate it. (laughs) (laughs) See this back to the problems with electronic medical records. It it all comes back to our our interoperability, our perfectly decentralized system. Um, All right. Well, that's as much time as we have for the news this week. Now we will play my interview with Molly Brody, and then we will come back and do the rest of our extra credits. I am so excited to welcome to the podcast one of my favorite people and colleagues, Molly Ann Brody. Molly is the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the Kaiser Family Foundation. But for the purposes of this discussion, she's also the Executive Director of Public Opinion and Survey Research for KFF and has been telling me what the public thinks about health policy for almost as long as I've been covering it. Welcome to What the Health, Molly. Thank you, Julie. I couldn't be more thrilled to be here. I am just such a fan of the show and of everything that you're doing, and I'm I'm kind of giddy about being here, so I'm excited. <laughs> excited to share. Well, we are here to talk about the vaccine monitor, which we will get to in a moment. But first, for those who aren't familiar with KFF's polling division, tell us what you guys do and how you do it and how we all sort of work together, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, most people, and I think most of your listeners know, KFF does basically three things. We do journalism, which is, of course, what, what the health is part of. We do polling and survey research, and we do policy analysis. And for nearly 30 30 years, KFF has played a vital role as an unbiased source of transparent and in-depth public opinion and survey research on health policy issues. At the core, our public opinion work seeks to give the public a voice in health policy debates, much like we do through our journalism or with our focus in policy analysis. But in particular, in our survey work, we want to make sure that the voices of those who are often overlooked are represented in the data. So the uninsured, those with lower incomes, members of racial and ethnic minority groups. And we do that through conducting our regular representative surveys of the public. And we touch on the full range of policy issues that KFF focuses on. We do this both in quick turnaround polls and in longer in-depth projects. Um, We address timely issues as they arise and we probe deeper on ongoing issues. I think one of the hallmarks of our public opinion work is that we don't just focus on beliefs and attitudes, but also knowledge and especially experiences. What is really happening to people in their daily lives when it comes to the arenas that are being debated in health policy? Which brings us to exactly what I want to talk about, which is the vaccine monitor. What is it and why did you decide to sink so much effort into tracking people's behavior around the COVID vaccine? 
Yeah, you know, a little over a year ago, like everyone else, we pivoted to do what we could to stem the pandemic and to shed light on what was affecting the nation. And for us, that was using our research expertise to shed light on how people were thinking about, reacting to, and responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, and especially to the advent of the vaccine. And I think Our ultimate goal is to provide as much of the research insights that we and others would need to target and fill information gaps and needs and developing messaging and and outreach to ensure and enhance vaccine confidence across the widest swath of the public. So by launching the Monitor, we basically launched a project that tracks the dynamic nature of public opinion both as vaccine development and distribution unfolded and really keeps a focus on information needs. And again, a focus on the views and experiences of some of the communities have had the biggest disproportionate impact of the pandemic. So using our research expertise to make sure we're representing the views of Black adults and Latino adults and some of the other segments. And I think that's what really distinguishes this effort is our commitment to the representative samples, the quick turnaround in this such a dynamic situation, and our commitment to stay with the issue. So it wasn't just what was happening when this was really newsy and breaking news at the beginning, but what's happening now that vaccine rollout is happening? How are people actually accessing the vaccine? Is it working for them? What are the information needs? Where are convincing that still needs to go on. Um, So what surprised you most about the way public attitudes and public behavior have sort of evolved over the course of this project? Yeah, I have to say the first thing that was surprising was just how quickly things have changed. The dynamic nature of this situation is just something I've never seen in my 30 years of tracking public opinion research. So just for example, from December to March, so such a short period of time, the share of the public eager to get vaccinated grew from about a third to six in 10 by March. So by March, about a third of adults were already vaccinated and another three in 10 said they wanted to get vaccinated as soon as possible. That's almost double what we had measured in December. That was accomplished and accompanied by a similar shift in the middle group. So the wait and see group, it's a group who really wanted to see what were these vaccines? How did they work for others? Well, in December, that movable middle was about four in 10 of adults. And now it's shrunk to about two in 10 adults. As many of the movable middle learned about the information they needed and they saw friends and family successfully vaccinated, they shifted to becoming eager. So, um, and I'll just say these things have occurred across all subgroups in the population. The other thing that I would say I was sort of surprised by is that how important it has been in this case not to think about any one group as monolithic in their vaccine intentions. We have very quickly developed narratives about the groups that are more resistant and hesitant and the groups that aren't. And I think that that's really been a problem. And I think that within every population group, we find people who are super eager, people who are in the movable middle, and people who are more reluctant. And I think that's been something that has been just a message that I've tried to get out over and over again. And I think I have been surprised by how quickly people are to sort of make judgment calls and label particular groups as resistant when they shouldn't. We can talk more about those details about who those groups are. And then the last thing I would say about what's been surprising is just how consistent and universal the concerns have been. So the people who are in the wait and see group, no matter kind of who they are, 
they are without exception really having real questions about the side effects about the vaccine, about how new they are, about how quickly they came online. The concerns are palatable, but they're also answerable. And sharing information from trusted sources and treating people who are unsure with the utmost of respect as they're trying to navigate their concerns really does help them convert to being interested in getting vaccinated. So I think those are the things that I've been most surprised about and that are different from so many other policy debates and so many other situations that I've pulled about in my career. Julie, I have one other thing that has also been the least surprising but unbelievably important is that people who have friends and family members who have been vaccinated are much more comfortable with the idea of getting vaccinated themselves. It's the classic thing that somebody you know has had experience with is something you're more likely to want to do. And I think this is going to be really important because one of the groups right now that's kind of hanging out in the middle is the young people, right? And young people just haven't been eligible yet. They're about to be eligible in large numbers across the nation. And I think we need to really watch that as young people, as their friends and family members are getting vaccinated, we may be seeing them move from middle kind of I'm questioning to eager. And I'm really hoping that will happen. But I think that's another thing that we just need to keep in mind that the more personal experience people have with the vaccination process, the more eager people are to get vaccinated. So I know you've got a separate but related survey going on with the Washington Post about uh, frontline health workers and their attitudes towards the vaccine. What has that shown? There were two real goals with that project. One, there was so much concern about since frontline healthcare workers were among the first to be eligible for the vaccine, there was a lot of um, interest and concern about what the uptake was going to be there, a sense that like they were going to be a good way for us to anticipate what would happen with the rest of the public. The other big goal of this project was really to shed light on the impact that the pandemic has had on this really crucial workforce. And um, what we found is that vaccine uptake among the frontline healthcare workers really depends a lot on who you're talking about, what their role in the healthcare system is, and where they're located with their jobs. So certainly those frontline workers who work in hospitals are the vast majority of them are already um, vaccinated. Um, those frontline workers who work closely with diagnosing and treating patients, so doctors, nurses, and other sort of diagnosticians, their vast majority of them are already vaccinated. It's the frontline workers who are working in patients' homes or who are doing more support and care of patients, like cleaning and bathing. Those frontline workers have lower rates of vaccination and eagerness, but still about half. But And where they are coming from, they have a lot of the same concerns as the average American, concerns about side effects and about other issues. And so I think we're really able to shed light on what the situation is and how different it is depending on when you work. What we also found is that the importance of your employer making the vaccines easily available mattered quite a bit. So for example, for those um, frontline workers who worked in the hospital, the employers made it easy. For the frontline workers who are working in patients' homes, it has hasn't been as regularly offered by their employers. And then on the other point, though, what's it meant for people's lives? Those people who are working the front line, I mean, I think all Americans, and we've seen this in our data, you know, struggled with their mental health and with their stress and their worries. And it's affected everybody so differently. Um, But with frontline workers, it's really had a major impact. About six in 10 say it's had some sort of impact on their mental health. They're not sleeping as well. They're not eating. They're getting headaches. 
And in many ways, it's affecting the youngest healthcare workers um, the most, and their rates of reporting stress and mental health impacts are really even higher. I think some of the other things that we learned is, you know, what's been the hardest thing we asked them? We said to frontline healthcare workers, what's the hardest thing about this pandemic? And they say, you know what, being worried about bringing the virus home to my family, right? Like they have a whole nother level of worry than a lot of us had, those of us who had the luxury really of isolating in our homes. They never had that that luxury. So it's a very compelling project and I think really does help set the stage as we're moving forward. And they are sort of optimistic that we're turning a quarter in the pandemic. Um, what does it mean to take care of them in the future? I was actually surprised at how optimistic they all seem to be. Yeah, there is a lot of optimism. Given what they've been through and how people are sort of right. ignoring the fact that this is still going on. Well, I want to wrap up. I know there are a lot of things that we as a society probably could have done better with the initial rollout of the vaccine. But is there something that the monitor suggests we could be doing better right now? Yeah, there are. You know, I think it's areas not that we have to do better, but where there's still areas to work on. And some of these are things that, you know, were least surprising about what we found in our poll. And one of the things that was the least surprising that we found in our poll is that rumors and myths spread really far and wide. And that misinformation, some of it is spread intentionally by nefarious actors, and a lot of it is spread unintentionally by people who just have really legitimate questions. So these information needs are very, very present, and they're really things that I think we can even do a better job doing. When we ask people who are in the wait and see group and about being what their concerns are, we're finding that large majority still are concerned that they can get COVID-19 from the vaccine, which we know isn't true. They're also really concerned that they're going to have to pay out-of-pocket costs. We know that's not true. Those are things that we can do better on. I also think that we as a nation could do a lot better job of just not shaming people who are vaccine questioning or vaccine resistant. We just need to understand that they have very legitimate concerns and information needs and the media can do a better job not overhyping the hesitancy. At this point, you know, two thirds are already vaccinated or eager to get vaccinated. It's hard to get that message when we're always talking about the resistant or, you know, the smaller groups who really are. And there are, there are legitimate pockets who are really resistant. We have to think about them. We have to figure out how to talk with them and help them come to a decision that people are making for themselves. But I think by not shaming people and by really allowing people and helping them to come to their own decisions about what's right for their family. I also think that we could do a better job on the idea that these vaccines were rushed, reminding people and helping people understand that the technology had been around for a really long time. I see you shaking your, your head as a journalist. I know every one of you, every journalist who's listening to this has written these stories before, but you got to do it over and over again. And we got to get the trusted messengers. And what we know is the really most trusted messengers here are doctors themselves, doctors and healthcare providers. We need to give the doctors and healthcare providers the tools to talk to people and to help them overcome their concerns. And I think if we can make it clear that so many doctors have already chosen to get vaccinated and help doctors reach out to their patients and help their patients come to understand and to get their real legitimate questions asked, I think those are all the things that we could be doing. Well, still much work to do. Uh, so we will have this conversation again. In the meantime, thank you very much, Molly Ann Brody. You are so welcome. 
Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Uh, Joanne, you've already gone. Sarah, why don't you go next? Sure. So my piece is um, by Usha Lee McFarling at STAT. It's Troubling Podcast Puts JAMA the voice of medicine under fire for its mishandling of race. And it's a really deep dive. Um, Recently, a couple of high editors at the Journal of American Medical Association's premier journal were put on leave over comments they made that were considered racist on a podcast. And this is not sort of a one-off incident that there's a broader history and culture within medical publishing that has downplayed the role of racism in healthcare and health outcomes. In terms of academics, they've found it very hard to actually publish any research on the topic. They get sort of punted to the opinion section, viewpoint section. The piece dives even further to the history of the American Medical Association and the journal, and basically it's keeping out of Black people and doctors from the organization. So it really gives you sort of this holistic look at how systemic institutional racism plays out. And again, sort of shows you how this podcast was just the like little tipping point or crack that got us to pay attention to an issue that's much deeper than many people might realize. And it's been there for a long time. Tammy. My story is a KHN story that ran in the Washington Post by Jordan Rao and Christine Spuller. Uh, It's called, the title is, Despite COVID, Many Wealthy Hospitals Had a Banner Year with Federal Bailout. And, you know, it's really interesting. Obviously, we saw in New York, starting in New York, but then across the country, and it's still happening, you know, in places like Michigan, the hospitals just being absolutely overwhelmed with patients and, you know, the, the cries for initially ventilators and PPE and, you know, and all of the problems. And then the stories are coming out about the prices for nurses and other, you know, professionals have just gone through the roof. So, you know, there's a thought that the hospital's really suffering, where at the same time, uh, early on, they had to stop elective procedures, so they weren't getting any money in. And, you know, this was a big problem. So the U.S. government provided a $178 billion fund, the provider relief fund, to help hospitals as well as nursing homes and some others to, you know, compensate them both for lost revenue because of the elective procedures and to help them pay for COVID-related expenses. Well, it seems that in some of these hospitals, uh, Jordan and Christine did a great job looking through uh, various hospital financial records and found out that some of them are actually doing quite well now with, you know, hospitals, typically nonprofit hospitals even, don't run on huge margins. I mean, they're not margins. I mean, there are for-profit hospitals, but not-for-profits and public hospitals still need to make some money to operate. But now they're making, some of them are making a lot more. So, you know, they looked at initially at um, Baylor, Scott, and White Health, the largest nonprofit system in Texas. They laid off in uh, 1,200 employees and furloughed others last May. And the federal government gave them $454 million from this relief fund. And at the end of the year, they had accumulated an $815 million surplus, creating a 7.5% operating margin, which is, you know, 
as they say, the envy of most other hospitals. So, you know, it it is an issue. It shows how the federal government, I mean, this is happening with the state relief funds. It's happening with the stimulus checks. You know, it's not easy for the federal government to pinpoint exactly where the need is. So, and especially in an emergency situation, the provider relief fund was created very early on. They just needed to rush the money to these, you know, hospitals that were running out of it and, you know, were being closed. But it just shows that, it was a problem because there are other hospitals, you know, including, as they say, well-heeled hospitals like New York Presbyterian. And there were also a lot of rural hospitals that were not helped as much. They did not get as much funding as they should have. And because a lot of it was the HHS distribution formulas. But it's, you know, yet another example of showing how getting help to people and hospitals and states and other things in need is very difficult. It is. And I think we saw a lot last year, both with the hospitals and with everything else that, you know, by the time the money got there, it was either too late or they didn't need it anymore. There there seemed to be a lot of that. Um, it's something that obviously everybody is struggling with. Well, my story is from The New Yorker, and it's called Sweden's Pandemic Experiment by Mallory Pickett. And the story is just what the headline suggests. It's a story of how Sweden decided not to follow the European herd and shunned lockdowns and mask mandates. And yes, way more people died per capita in Sweden than in other Scandinavian countries, but it didn't do nearly as badly as some other countries that did lock down, like Italy and the UK. And the reasons why are complicated, and we still don't really understand understand all of them. And that's kind of what I got out of this story. It highlights that everyone is still kind of fumbling around in the dark and doing the best that we can and learning more as we go. And I think everybody just needs to stay humble. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions we're at what the health all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me i'm at jay rovner sarah i'm at sarah carlin joanne at joanne cannon tammy at luby l-u-h-b-y we will be back in your feed next week in the meantime be healthy be healthy